Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Well, it's just, again, so good to be with all of you. And if you'll just allow me a, a moment of just just personal joy before I get into the message. I just want to say I, this morning before both uh, services, before I had a chance to come up and, and preach when I was just in the front row, I had uh, Steve Turner came over and, and, and prayed for me. And I was just thinking, just as he was praying and asking God to bless the, the service and bless my message, I was thinking about 35 years ago being in your Wednesday night group. And just to, we were back in the, the, the trailers and those, those were our children's classrooms. And now we have this. It's pretty amazing, Steve. God, God has really blessed our church and blessed me to be able to get to be a part of it. But uh, just to get into the message, it's Benjamin Franklin who's credited with the old adage that time is money. But of course, that's not exactly right. After all, money has a readily exchangeable market and can be saved and borrowed across time periods. That's, that's not true of time. After all, if you were to lose $100 today or, or sometime next week, you could make it up at some future point, tomorrow or you know next month. You could get your money back, as it were. But that isn't true with time. A lost hour can never be recovered at some point in the future. Now, depending on what stage in life you're in right now, you might value your money more than your time, and that's that's okay. But ultimately, our time is our life. If you run out of money, life goes on. It's just true. Now, your life might not be as fun if you run out of money or the things that money can buy. might not be as comfortable. But if you run out of money... Life still goes on. But on the other hand, when you run out of time, that's it. Which is why, while I think there's truth in what Franklin said when he said time is money, the reality is that our time is even more valuable than our money. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that our God has given us both of these resources, time and money, and he has expectations for how we will use what we have been given. So I want you to think about this relationship, about how valuable time is in comparison to money, as we look at a couple of different stories in the Gospel of Matthew about some people who have resources. And the very first one is definitely about money, right? It's the parable of the talents. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 25. And, and we call it the parable of the talents. Some translations will talk about uh, the parable of the, the servants with like gold bags or, or, or something like that. This is not like talent in the sense that you have an ability to, you know, play a sport or play a musical instrument. Uh, depending on if it was, a talent is a weight of, of money. And depending on if it was silver or gold, we're talking about a master who's going to entrust his servants with Hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, as the case may be. So in verse 14, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or or the kingdom of God. And he says this, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now, just just real quickly, we'll, we'll keep going here in a minute. But very often when Jesus tells parables... He has a very, well, he always has a specific agenda, but very often it's very important for us to recognize which characters, uh, like 
in the story represent like real people or or specific situations. And so sometimes because we're talking about these parables almost 2000 years later, it can be hard for us to exactly identify what's going on in the parable. But I think in this parable, it's pretty clear in just a few chapters, you know, like two pages over in my Bible, Jesus is going to ascend to heaven and he's going to leave his disciples behind. So I think it's clear that in this parable, Jesus is the master and the three servants represent the disciples. They, they represent us. Okay, back, back to the parable. In verse 15, it says, To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, I think it's really interesting that although all the servants have the same boss, they all have the same master, The servants don't all receive the same amount of resources. The master entrusts different amounts to them according to his judgment of their ability. Now, sometimes when we read this parable, people really get bothered by that part of the story. Does it seem unfair to you that the master doesn't give everyone the same amount? That the master identifies that people, different people have different levels of ability and not everyone is the same? Not everyone has the same capacity? In your own life, do you ever feel jealous about the gifts and abilities that God has given to other people? Have there been moments in your life like there have been in mine where I felt like a one-talent servant in a room full of, you know, five-talent people? I've felt like I didn't measure up to the gifts and abilities and capacities of other people. But here's the thing. If you've ever felt that way, like I've felt that way. The good news is that God isn't going to evaluate my life based on other people's abilities. And the same is true for you. He's going to evaluate us based on our abilities. John Ortberg points out that our God knew exactly what he was doing when he created you. He is well pleased that you exist. And he has entrusted to you everything you need to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. So at the end of the day, God will not ask you why you didn't lead someone else's life. Or why you didn't invest someone else's gifts. He will not ask you, what did you do with what you didn't have? What he will ask is, what did you do with what you have? And I think that's a great question. What did you do with what you had? And as we think about a day when the master will return, where we will come into his presence, are we ready to answer that question? Because we need to be prepared. Another thing that I find interesting about this parable is that the master never tells any of the servants what to do with the resources he gives them. But it is clear that he had expectations because after being gone for a long time, he returns and he wants to know what the servants did with what he gave them. It says, he settled accounts with them and the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, good, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now this pattern that is established with the the servant who has five talents is repeated with the servant who has two talents. And as we think about what the master says to the servant, these are words that all of us want to hear when we get to heaven. When we come before our heavenly father, we want... To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's that's what we want to hear. That's what I want to hear. But you know, I was thinking about something this week as I was thinking about this particular passage. 
at least for me, so often when I look at this passage, I tend to focus on the fact that the servants were faithful with the master's money. And, and that's true. But it's interesting, the master also identifies that they were good. They weren't given instructions, but they knew their master's heart. They knew their master's character. They knew the kind of person their master was. And they wanted to be like him. That's what made them good. So they did the things their master would have done if he had been physically present with them. They were empowered, as it were, by their master with these resources. But if we've learned anything from Spider-Man, it's that with great power comes great responsibility, right? And in some cases, the greater the power, the greater the responsibility. But is that responsibility something we really want? I mean, just consider the last servant in the story. In verse 24, we read, Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And we're going to continue here, but just nothing has been lost. He did not lose what was given to him. He's returning it to his master. But his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's just no getting around it. This last section of this parable is disturbing. Some other time we could try to go into the detail of what exactly it might mean theologically when it comes to us and our relationship with God. But what I want to focus on today is that when the servant, this last servant interacts with his master, he is trying to avoid responsibility. He's trying to abdicate responsibility. On some level, we could say he's projecting his own heart attitude onto the master. It's like, this is what I would be like if I was the master. And so that must be what my master is like. But, but more importantly, and I think what we're supposed to identify here is that this guy is trying to sort of blame the master for not giving him explicit instructions. He essentially tells the master, you didn't tell me what to do. So I didn't do anything. I didn't lose what you gave me. I'm giving it back to you now. I didn't know exactly what you wanted me to do. So I didn't take a risk. I did the safe thing and I buried what you gave me. Here it is. And as I think about the servant in this story, I think about how often in prayer I will say, I'm trying to seek out or understand or discern what is God's will? What what is it that God wants me to do? But do I ask that kind of question? Do I pray that kind of thing in prayer? Because actually I love God's will and I want to see God's will done. Or is it just that I don't want to take any risks? And somehow I think that if I knew exactly what God's will was, then it would be the safe thing. I wouldn't be responsible for the outcome. It would be all on him. Do I love God's will or do I just not want to be responsible for my decisions? 
Jesus' story in Matthew 25 begins with the master entrusting his servant with great wealth. And the question is, can they be trusted? Can these servants be trusted with what they have been given? And so often in the Christian life, there's a kind of pattern that we see from this parable that we also experience. We start out in the Christian life as we're trying to decide whether or not to become wholehearted followers of Jesus. We're trying to decide, is the master good? Is the master faithful? Can the master be trusted? Can God be trusted with my life? But over time, as we seek to become wholehearted followers of Jesus, we begin to encounter this much more personal and practical question. Yes, God can be trusted, but can I be trusted with what God has given me? Will I be good and faithful as his servant? And as we think about that as a question, that's a big question. But the reality is that this story in Matthew 25 is just a story. It didn't really happen. It was just a parable. It has made up people, made up master, made up servants. It's true, but not true, if you get my meaning. But our next story, our last story from Matthew 15, it's not just a parable. It really did happen. On this occasion in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is teaching on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a huge crowd who have come to listen to him teach. And in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, But where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. Now, the principle that I want you to notice here in Matthew 15 is that Jesus doesn't ask the disciples for what was needed. He asked them for what they had. Right? He doesn't ask them what is needed to feed this huge crowd of 4,000 men as well as women and children. He doesn't ask them for what it was needed. He asked them for what they had. And whether I am a five-talent, two-talent, or one-talent servant, the truth is I can't control the, how big the need is in front of me. I, I can't control that, that crowd, that need, how big it is. All I can control is what will I do with what I have. With the talent, the resources I have been given, what will I do with what I have? Now, one of the things that's interesting about this passage in Matthew 15 is that in this passage, Jesus comes to the disciples and talks to them about the needs of the crowd. So Jesus takes the initiative. But if you just flip back one page in Matthew 14, in a sense, the roles are almost reversed. The disciples come to Jesus. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. This is what we call the feeding of the 5,000. And on that occasion... The disciples come to Jesus and tell him about the needs of the crowd. But what is interesting is that while in Matthew 15, Jesus seems to take ownership of the problem and says, we need to do something to meet this need. In Matthew 14, the disciples don't. In fact, they come to Jesus and they say to him, this is a remote place and it's already getting late Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus, we see this problem. 
and it's a big problem and we can't solve it. So will you please send the people away? Now, this story feels so personal to me that I can relate to that kind of sentiment, that kind of attitude. The disciples identify that there's an issue, that there's a problem, but because it's too big for them and they know that they can't solve it, they know they can't fix it, but they just don't want to be around it. So they asked Jesus to send the people away. How many times have I come to God in prayer asking for him to do something about a person or a problem or a situation that I couldn't fix? Maybe it was breaking my heart, but on some level, I just felt like, God, my responsibility is to somehow in prayer make you aware of this. I know you already knew, but I'm going to like let you know. And this will be a way for sort of both of us to understand that I have transferred the burden of the responsibility of this problem from me to you. So like, I'm just suggesting, but if you'll just send them away and somehow like you'll take care of the problem somewhere else. I'm just like the disciples in that way. I I know my limitations. And so I join them in saying to Jesus, like, I can't care about this problem in a way where I can engage with it and fix it. So will you please just send them away? But Jesus says to me, and he says to the disciples, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And it doesn't tell us in the Bible, you know, how the disciples responded to Jesus there in Matthew 14. Just like in the sense of what they were thinking. But if they're like me, I bet they were thinking something along the lines of, wait, 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 Jesus The whole point of this interaction is that we brought the problem to you. We have handed off the problem. We have handed off the responsibility to you. But now you are asking us, you are asking me to do something. I don't know, when you have faced those sorts of situations or in the future when you face a situation like that, how will you respond? In prayer, what will you tell Jesus? Will you say something like, yes, you have given me a burden, but I don't have the resources. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the ability to meet this need. I I just can't do it. And that's, I, I have the best of intentions. It's not that I don't care at all, but I just, like, this is breaking my heart and it's too painful to be around all the time. So will you just send the problem away and like somewhere else will you fix it with someone else? But that's where we have to come back to this story. Again, Jesus doesn't ask the disciples for what is needed to solve the problem. He asks them for what they had. Now, another detail in this story that I think is interesting is that in the feeding of the 4,000, when Jesus initiates talking with the disciples, he says to them, I have compassion for these people. Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. But then it's very clear that he expects the disciples to take responsibility for so like addressing this problem. And again, in those moments, when I have been in a place like the disciples, there's a part of me is like, Jesus, if you have the compassion, why don't you do something? Why don't you take the responsibility? After all, Jesus, wouldn't you be way better at feeding all these people than us? I mean... One page over in Matthew 14, that's what you did. You fed the 5,000, like, let's just do it again. I'm glad you feel compassion, but why do I have to take responsibility for how you feel, Jesus? 
But here's the thing. Of course, Jesus is better at feeding the people than us. But if we go back to the earlier parable, Jesus doesn't want us to bury our talent and wait until the master returns to take care of everything. He wants us to do something right now, even when he isn't there. He wants us to take a risk. And in this story, Jesus wanted to stretch his disciples, just like our God wants to stretch you and me. Now we see the stretching of the disciples in a particular aspect of these stories of Jesus feeding people in Matthew 14 and 15. And it's a detail that I think is often overlooked because although we say Jesus fed the 5,000 and Jesus fed the 4,000, and of course, ultimately that's true. Jesus is the one who provided all the food. If you look on sort of a kind of technical level, that isn't actually right. Jesus doesn't actually feed all of the people. The disciples feed all the people. Jesus performed his miracle through them. It was his miracle, but he did it through them. Look at what it says in verse 35 of Matthew 15. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they, in turn, to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus took the food and gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And they were the ones who actually distributed it to the people. This means the disciples were the ones who actually saw the miracle taking place as it was happening. It wasn't like Jesus prayed over the loaves and the fish and then like just, and like huge buffet all at once. Everybody just kind of come by and pick up what you want. No, we know from some of the other gospel accounts of these stories that Jesus told the crowds to be seated. He had the disciples separate them into sections of like 100 people or like 50 people. And then after Jesus gave thanks and gave the food to the disciples, it was the disciples who sort of went section by section. And then as somehow, as they would pass out a piece of bread or fish, it was supernaturally replaced. It did not run out. In fact, by the end of this story, there is way more food than they started with. And I love this story and its implications for you and me. Jesus took what the disciples gave him. He took what the disciples are absolutely certain is not enough. And after blessing it, he tears it up and he gives it back to the disciples to distribute and isn't it possible that our God wants to do the same thing through you and me? Remember those words from John Ortberg. Our God has entrusted to you everything you need to fulfill the purpose for which you created, which he, you were created. So what will you do with what you have? When you look at the problem in front of you and you are certain that what you have is absolutely not enough. That's right. But are you willing to give it to Jesus? Are you willing to give him your talents and abilities and experiences and memories? Put it in his hands and he's going to bless it. And then he's going to somehow tear up those experiences and abilities and talents and memories and all those things that make you, you. And then he's going to give it back to you and you're going to distribute it to other people in his name. And it's going to bless them. 
That, that's what he wants to do through you and me. And if you'll do that, you will see God do a miracle. Now, it might make you nervous to take on a God-sized project like this, and you might be afraid that it's not going to work out. And we might say, metaphorically, we, we just have to recognize that as Jesus tears up our talents and gifts and abilities and memories and experiences and causes us to do all these different things, it might hurt. But then when he gives it back to us, we're going to get to see a miracle through us. It's his miracle done through our hands. Our God is still working today just as he worked in the era when the scriptures were being written. We can be a part of what God is doing to bless our world today. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.